This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, April 5th, 2023. On today's episode, we're going to have a spoiler-filled conversation about The Mandalorian Chapter 22, Guns for Hire. This is Slash Film Editorial Director Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast, it's Slash Home Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And Star Wars expert, Brian Young. I'm just thrilled to be alive. B- Brian, you're you're not in London yet, but you're going there today? No, I'm actually, as soon as we're done recording, I'm going to pack and head to the airport and fly to London for celebration. Exciting. I mean, I'm excited to hear about it. Uh, but, you know, before we do, let's get into this episode of The Mandalorian. Let's talk about uh, feedback from last week. As always, you can write us at peter at slashfilm.com with your theory, speculation, questions. Uh, Brian, another Brian, not you, Brian, but Brian in Texas. I was going to say. Although that would be funny if you wrote in a question for your own show. That would be weird. But maybe someday. Uh, Brian in Texas writes in. I've seen some speculation online that the remnants of the attacked Lambda-class shuttle found last week could have been where Cara Dune met her her ending in Star Wars canon. And he he asked us our thoughts on that. Brad, do you have any thoughts on that? That would be great. (laughs) (laughs) I I actually think it would be great, too, because I, I think they're leaving her existence open-ended so they could do stuff in comics or elsewhere but i don't know i i think if it was why wouldn't they have pointed it out i guess well i mean they don't necessarily have like the details yet so you know could always find that out later but yeah and i mean she wasn't floating around with the bodies in there so i think carson tavo would have recognized that Yeah, he would have been like, oh, I remember her. I gave her that medal that one time. Or wait, did yeah. he? No, who was the one that gave her the badge? Was it him? That or was, was him. it? That was him. him. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, let's move on to Aaron, who writes in. Uh, one thing I want to bring up is the issue in uh, the issue of a particular pirate, uh, conspicuous in his absence. Hondo Anaka was one of my favorite animated Star Wars characters, and it seems strange that Dave Filoni... In a Dave Filoni show, in which we've now had two episodes in which pirates play a major role, the most obvious Filoni pirate character hasn't had a mention, let alone appearance. Would Brian know any reason why they would want to avoid using Hondo, or any in-universe reason why his appearance wouldn't make any sense? 
So I think the biggest one in this case is that they killed, with one exception, all of those pirates. And Hondo Onaka survived, right? Like, Hondo Onaka made it through. We know that he appears at Galaxy's Edge. Um, We know that he, you know, gets to the sequel trilogy era. So they couldn't have just thrown Hondo in there in this situation because they would have then murdered him. Because these pirates were a story point, not ongoing characters in the saga like Hondo is. I mean, yeah, th- that makes sense. Um, actually, recently, uh, I was gonna, I was trying to pull this up because I think we wrote about it on SlashFilm.com. Uh, Filoni was at, where was he at? He was at some... Um, uh, <laughs> uh, Paley Fest, which is like a, a screenwriter kind of thing. Uh, he Someone asked him if they had considered using Anakin in that Grogu flashback. And he admitted that uh, it was considered at one point. He said, quote, I discussed it with John briefly. And I said, you know, there were some opportunities there. We always have the kind to kind of look at every possibility. At the end of the day, though, a character like Anakin, one of George's characters, we have to be very careful how we utilize those characters. Uh, It's very special when we do. So I think, we quickly moved away from that. Um, I'm, I'm just bringing this up because this is another, like, you know, why didn't this character appear? Why didn't that character appear? I also think, like, it, it's a case of, you know, you make the, this galaxy really small when you only have one pirate. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think Hondo would have fit, right? When we saw Hondo at the end of Rebels, he had pretty much thrown his lot in with the Rebellion. And he would still do dodgy things, right? When we see his trajectory from the ending of Rebels and his appearance again in, uh, you know, Galaxy's Edge on Batu, he's still very much a good guy. And these pirates were very much not that. Yeah, yeah. No, that's for sure. And is he still a pirate at this point in the timeline? Well, I mean, this is a few years after the events of Rebels, And, uh, I mean, who knows what shady business he's up to at this point. Would he be a pirate? Would he be a privateer? Would he be something? Uh, Or would he have joined the Rebellion? I think it's anybody's guess. And it's it's wide open. Like, they could do anything they want with it. They just need to keep it on that trajectory to put him on Batu, borrowing the Millennium Falcon from Chewbacca. Yeah. But by that time, he's running a... a legitimate uh business right Uh, purely legitimate onaka transport solutions is completely (laughs) legitimate i don't your tone implies that you would think otherwise and i think that's a little insulting peter (laughs) okay uh let's get let's uh get into brief reactions for this episode the mandalorian chapter 22 guns for hire Uh, let's start with brad because we haven't heard much from brad yet brad what did you think of chapter 22 you know, I like this episode. It's uh, it's a little bit different than what you expect from from Star Wars and even The Mandalorian, even though it involves you know uh, a side quest that leads to a, another another quest and like you know a video game style narrative where you need to do something in order to get the information and reach the people you actually want want to get to. Um, but I think one thing that I appreciate about this episode is 
Star Wars, you know, needs to expand into arenas that we haven't really frequented much before. And uh, there's definitely some similarities here, I think, to the Canto Bite sequence from The Last Jedi. But there's also uh, a little bit of a different vibe here because it's it's a little bit more uh, comedic, a little bit more more silly. And I, I'm personally fine with that because they're 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 in an entire galaxy of characters there has to be a wide variety of people. And if we're constantly introduced to the same kind of settings and people with the same kind of vibe, you know, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So like, it's fine to me, uh, you know, having characters, uh, you know, played by people like Jack Black and, and Lizzo, where they're a little bit goofy and they don't really fit the mold of usual Star Wars stuff. And uh, on top of that, I really like the Law and Order Mandalorian detective unit angle where Bo-Katan <laughs> and Din Djarin go around and, you know, figure out who's committing the, 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 these crimes with droids and stuff like that. Um, I do think that the droid stuff ended up getting a little uh, weird and maybe made things infinitely more complicated for the place that droids have in the Star Wars galaxy. But we'll get to that once we talk more about the, the, the specifics of this episode later. Yeah, Brad coming off on the defensive, uh, which <laughs> we, sh- we should mention because... There's a large amount of Star Wars fans online that say that this is the worst episode of The Mandalorian thus far. But Brian, I'm guessing you don't think so. No, I, this felt very much in line with... Um, there's a couple of episodes of Clone Wars I'm thinking of specifically where it's just like... You walk in, there's this new weird culture, and it's really funny and hilarious, and your heroes move through it. I'm thinking specifically of the... There's two episodes of um, Clone Wars, where R2 and 3PO are sort of put in these positions, and one of them puts them in a situation where it's like Gulliver's Travels, and the other one puts them in Wizard of Oz. And this feels like it very firmly puts Din Djarin and Bo-Katan in Wonderland. And... (laughs) I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. There's a history of this stuff in Star Wars. I think to Brad's point, yeah, like this feels like a Canto Bite episode. I happen to really love Canto Bite and you could feel the same sort of touchstones to like Brazil that Canto Bite had. I don't think it's any less funny than Canto Bite. I think they're on par. Um, But this episode really advanced the story significantly, even though we took that side route and it, I realize what the pattern that John Favreau is aiming for, right? The very beginning and the very end of every episode seems to advance the plot and everything else in the middle is just like, let's go on a wacky adventure uh, in between. Right. I got it. I, I kind of hate that, that uh, structure. I'm not talking about this episode. I'm just saying in general, like, I kind of want, I love serialized television. I like serialized story, storytelling because it's not episodic. And I, I hate that, like, with Mandalorian, they constantly feel like it's mission of the week. And then, like, at the very end, we get a bit learning of, like, how it's going to forward the plot. I'm, but, fine, I'm mean, fine if it's a mix of both, though. I, I, I don't mind having a procedural style to it as long as there's some kind of serial arc that keeps, you know, the characters progressing and like a larger story that, you know, continues in, in bits and pieces. Yeah. And and I think what's interesting with this episode is I was shocked again that they resolved something so easily that we'd been sort of curious about and it makes me wonder what I, I feel like like all the stuff that's getting resolved really easily this season is going to end up being a, a monkey's paw for the next two episodes 
Hmm. Okay, well, we'll get into that. Um, you know what? I I didn't have a noir style detective story on my Mandalorian season three bingo card, guys. And it was a weird episode, which I feel like in all accounts I should have not liked. Like I don't like when Mandalorian goes like super humor and has like these cameos and and uh, goes off in its own like mission of the week story. But it, it was so weird. Like this episode was so weird. This this world was so weird. It had so many cool cool bits of imagery in this episode as well, which we'll talk about. And um, I don't know. I I kind of liked it. Uh, I, I'm not gonna say I loved it. I'm not gonna be a diehard on this. I, it definitely has its problems. I feel like. I wish that I guess John Favreau was the screenwriter credited with that, this episode. I wish John Favreau could have somehow incorporated this mystery storyline more into not just like, oh, we need to get past this mystery to get to the night owls. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it felt like a speed bump that I was waiting for them to get past the bump. And I, if it was more integrated to, to that, um, you know, maybe the night owls are there trying to solve the mystery. You know, something, I don't know, it just felt like that. that's, I guess, my big problem is when you feel that it's the episode of the the mission of the week and it feels like it's not furthering the story, it, it really uh, becomes frustrating for me. And I will say that, uh, is this mystery fulfilling, the, 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 the mystery that they that they solved in this episode. I, I, I'm i all for Mandalorian and Grogu and Bo-Katan going on these uh, NCIS mystery uh, around the galaxy, but I'm not sure if, like, you know, who they found out was the culprit was all that fulfilling of a, you know, if this this was no Ryan Johnson mystery is what I'm, what I'm basically saying. It was no, no Ryan Johnson uh, whodunit is what I'm saying. Uh, Brian, any thoughts on that? No, I think I think I, I think that that's those are all fair. Um, I do think that where it was furthering the story was actually the relationship between Bo and Din Jaren. Yeah, and Din specifically, and his like his still, um, his his distrust of droids. Right, this is him being Eddie Valiant getting sent back to Toontown. A good reference, considering who's involved in this episode. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Um, but it's it's like that, right? Where he's reluctant. He's like, oh, man, droids. But he goes through and does it. And I just there's something hilarious to me about him just kicking B2 battle droids, super battle droids until one of them turns on him. Um, <laughs> but it, it I mean, like, yeah, it didn't do much except for save this planet and move the story along so that they got access to talk to the other folks, uh, you know, and Axe Wolves and those and those sort. But uh, there's so much weird stuff in this episode. I just I love when Star Wars gets weird. I do, too. OK, we have a lot to talk about in our breakdown. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. OK, let's get into it, guys. Uh, actually, before we get into it, you know, we always talk about the director. This episode is directed by Bryce Dallas Howard who is slowly becoming uh, one of the biggest directors in Star Wars live action because this is her third episode of The Mandalorian. She's also directed an episode of Book of Boba Fett. Uh, she's played a character in Star Wars universe in Yaddle. Um, she uh, 
I guess that makes only her and Dave Filoni to be the only two directors that have done every episode or every season of Mandalorian. And I guess Filoni's not doing this season, right? He doesn't have an episode this season. I don't I don't think he does, but he's written some episode or co-written some episodes this season. Yeah. So she's the only person that has done all three seasons of Mandalorian, which is kind of impressive. And um uh she's now directed almost three hours of Star Wars live action television. Uh so she she's she's that that's impressive. One th- one thing I've noticed is sometimes directors in Mandalorian are kind of connected with characters. Like you saw Rick was kind of connected with, um, Oh my God, what's that guy's name? Uh, that the prison breakout guy. That's the Migs Mayfeld. Yes. Yes. Like he, he kind of like, like his a bunch of episodes involved him. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and involved prison breaks. Like there's something thematic ties usually and sometimes directors are tied to characters like you know uh, obviously dave filoni with ahsoka uh but um bryce directed the episode uh, in season two where which introduced bo-katan and night owls and here is kind of a follow-up of sorts which i thought is kind of interesting but i wanted to hear you guys thoughts on uh, the direction of this episode i i found it really what they're doing with the void with the volume, I mean, you can tell that she's way more comfortable with it. In season one, the cameras felt a lot more locked down, especially in her episodes. And now, like, they're flying through space or flying through, like, train tunnels in the volume. You know what I mean? Like, you can tell that part of the reason they keep asking her back is because she is very comfortable with the technology that puts them at the level of production value that live action Star Wars needs to be. And, and I can't imagine they'd keep asking her back if she wasn't good at it. And she's also good at juggling the dynamics of a uh, uh, character, like really like uh, intimate character moments and stuff like that. Uh, Brad, any thoughts on the direction of Bryce Dallas Howard in this episode? No, I, def- I definitely echo what, uh, what Brian thinks, you know, I mean, e- even stuff like the, uh, even though there is a certain like, lower budget approach to the chase that happens, you know, between Bo-Katan and Din and the, the super battle droid. Um, you know, it didn't, it didn't look, you know, awful or anything like that. You know, they're obviously using the tools that they have that they need to pull off without using uh, a huge, you know, blockbuster budget. And it still looked, looked good. And, uh, you know, the, there's definitely production value there that feels, uh, bigger than maybe what they otherwise, you know, would be allowed to, to spend. So I think that they're, they're doing a good job of, uh, yeah, utilizing the tech and the resources they have to, to give us something that looks and feels uh, a little bit different, but also st- still familiar. Yeah. Uh, so this episode opens with this weird beige-colored shellfish-looking ship. Brian, have we ever seen this kind of ship before in Star Wars? So... As soon as the ship appeared, I was able to place it from the planet Mon Calamari. It has all the flourishes of Mon Calamari vessels like you'll see in Return of the Jedi or uh, with Admiral Akbar's Home One or the Profundity in Rogue One. Um, and so I placed it with that culture. I thought it was going to be a Mon Calamari ship and was actually surprised when there were Corrin on the bridge instead. Because, But Corrin and... Mon Calamari share a planet, so that wasn't so surprising. But uh, but yeah, you've seen ships of similar style or similar sort of 
culture, but not at this size or scale before. Usually all we've seen are the big, you know, capital ships. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the Quarren captain is alerted to the presence of an Imperial ship. And, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier how the visuals in this episode are just super cool. The production design. Like, how cool is it? The, the captain being submerged in that tank of water. There's someone that comes over with, like, a goldfish or something and dumps it in, like, with a glass. And then, like, the, the captain eats it. And uh, the tank when uh the ship actually gets the call from the imperial ship gets uh like the tank as recession into the floor and it drains and uh i don't know i i just thought that was super cool and it didn't need to be super cool <laughs> there was no reason yeah. for it to be as cool as it was the the whole bridge setup reminded me actually like it took me i didn't realize christopher lloyd was going to be on this episode but that whole setup on the bridge made me feel of star like Star Trek three, right? Uh, like it had that cool bridge Star Trek vibe. And then when I saw him and I was like, Oh wait, they're just going full Star Trek. The one thing I wanted to ask you guys is like this, like this whole scene seems like it's almost overkill for a bunch of characters that are just, it's just a setup for the night owls that they have the, the Imperial ship. I think there's some other storytelling going on there, too, though, as far as what's going on on the Mon Calmari homeworld, which is something that we've explored in detail on the Clone Wars and in the comics. And by giving us a new prince, the last we'd heard about a prince of Mon Calmari, uh, it was Lee Char, uh, who was the prince and became the ruler of Mon Calmari, and he um, died in Imperial captivity. Um not long after the Battle of Yavin. And uh, so we haven't really had an update about Mon, you know, the Mon Calmari people other than cameos by Admiral Akbar, and implying that there's a new prince here and that there's still tension between the Corn and the Mon Calmari actually does a little bit of storytelling in the broader universe, not that it affects the Mandalorian whatsoever. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I think, uh, yeah. Uh, so the, uh, the, Imperial light cruiser that the night owls have possession of. Is this the same light cruiser that Moff Gideon had at the end of last season? No, I, I got the impression. This is the one that they boarded and stole with the help of the Mandalorian to get the guns. Ah, uh, okay. Um, so Axe Wolves and the Night Owls were hired by the Mon Calamari Viceroy to retrieve her son, which Captain Shagoth has run off with and uh, the captain insists that it's a lie and the corns finally have peace with the Mon Calamari. Uh, you've kind of explained the political situation here, but it, it, it seems like even though they have peace, like it's still a Romeo and Juliet situation of sorts. Like the, the, the Mon Calamari don't want him with the corn. Or at least taking off with some ra random freighter captain. But yeah, that Romeo and Juliet vibe felt pretty obvious. Yeah, uh, the, the captain here is played by actress Christine Adams, who uh, played Jessica in Batman Begins. She's been in 50 different TV series. She's a, a veteran TV actor, TV actress. And um, and also she's much older than the person who plays the Mon Calamari, uh, which we should say, if you recognize the voice of the Mon Calamari, it's not because that person's famous 
or is is an actor that you'd recognize but it's because they are related to someone that you would recognize and that's because the mon calamari is played by harry holland who is tom holland's younger brother so it's a little bit of peter parker vibes i i do got to say that it didn't match up for me like i i i always imagine mon calamari to sound like admiral akbar or um lieutenant back or uh the person that was in um rogue one i don't know like it's just i know he's younger but it sounds weird so it 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 felt like it matched to me if you go back and watch those episodes of clone wars with prince lee char it tracked that youthful voice and even it it tracked a little bit to me aftab's voice aftab akbar in rise of skywalker Hmm. yeah um Another thing, you know, I mentioned earlier that I like to kind of like uh, look at the touch tones of, of directors. I like to see like uh, things that they like doing in every, you know, you know, w- why was uh, Bryce Dallas Howard picked for this episode? And it, it occurred to me, and I'm not sure if there's something here. This might be a reach. So tell me if this is a reach. But another thing that occurred to me is that um, while love stories certainly are rare in Star Wars, Mandalorian verse has not seen a lot of them. And uh, it occurred to me that all three of Bryce's Mandalorian episodes feature a love story. So she directed chapter four, which had Mandalorian kind of having this relationship with the Sorgan woman. And then in chapter 11, she directed the episode with the frog lady getting reunited with her husband. And uh, chapter here, there's this forbidden love story going on and also the love story on the planet. Um Brian, is it a coincidence or am I onto something? I don't think that's I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility when John Favreau goes, you know what? There's going to be some romance elements here, and I know that Bryce Dallas Howard handled those well. Let's get her on this episode. I could yeah. see that happening very easily. Yeah. Um so this forbidden love is not meant to be, and the night owls take the Moncalamari prince away, but not before Captain Slugoff's jaw tentacles stroke his face. Brad, were you grossed out by this? I mean, <laughs> I don't know about that. I mean, you know, ev- ev- everyone has to, you know, have their own way of expressing affection. So, you know, they can they can do what they need to do. Brad, do you think this is all just pretense for them getting to Plaza 15? Or do you... Or do you think there's something more going on? Like, are we going to see these characters again? You like the, you mean the alien characters? I assume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I no, I think that this was just a way of of introducing us into what uh, the, um, you know Bo-Katan's former allies have been up to, uh, leaning into the idea that they easily could be responsible for um, the ones who you know broke uh, Moff Gideon out of uh, Republic custody. Uh, but I still think it's open-ended as to whether or not they actually did. They could easily still be framed for uh, for that action. And just because they've been doing stuff for, uh, you know, the, the Empire doesn't mean that they actually did that. Though, though it does make it more likely. Hmm. Okay, so the Chapter 22 title is revealed, Guns for Hire. And I feel like every week I ask Brian to explain this. This one, it, seem, it seems like it's easier to see the multiple layers of this title but brian i'm sure you have this preps explain guns for hire well i think guns for hire obviously you've got axe woves and in his folks there that are literal privateers but you've got 
Din Djarin and Bo-Katan coming into this culture where they're like, we don't have guns, but we respect your culture and we need your guns to solve this problem for us. And so they they create that transaction. But then also there's this other level of like the battle droids, right? Like the battle droids who are all literally just guns that are now dropped into this this labor market uh, in really interesting ways. So it, it, it sort of works for all the major characters uh, that we explore in this episode. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, you were right about that. Um, not even just the major characters, but um, maybe you could, uh, the, the droids could be an analogy of guns for hire. Uh, they're being hired by this, the city. I don't know. Uh, Bo-Katan navigates her ship down to the planet and uh Brian, is this a new planet? Have we heard of this before? We have not. And I think we're meant to be the audience when Din Jaren goes, I've never even heard of it. Like, I think he's speaking for yeah. us because none of us have. Um, it reminded me a lot of Epcot, though. Did you get that vibe? <laughs> yes. Definitely. Not just, I don't, I, I don't even mean just the geodesic domes, right? But like the, the whole like... The monorail, it, it looks like what Walt was trying to do with the experimental prototype community of tomorrow. Yeah, no, I, it, yeah, it reminds me more of, I think, that uh, the experimental prototype community of tomorrow than it does of actually uh, Epcot, but that definitely did occur to me while I was watching it. Um, actually, I have something to say, say about that in a second. Um, but it's it's cool looking, domed cities, this plush planet. Usually when you see dome cities, it's like like a Mars like planet and like, you know, because the domes are where you have to live. Which makes me wonder why there's dome cities in the first place. Because at the end of the episode we see them out in the the lush green, like when Bokatan is having her fight. I think the impression I got was that it was a defense thing, right? It was like inside these domes were safe outside there the rest of the galaxy can be yeah that, that makes sense um so this is the outer room's only remaining direct democracy and bokatan tries to land outside the perimeter but the planet takes over control of the ship and guides them to the landing pad she has no control i know this is really nitpicky of me i'm, I'm saying that up front but this seems rather dangerous to have technology exist in the Star Wars galaxy where anyone can take control of a ship, even if it's just within like a certain range. Because why wouldn't the Empire of the First Order use that? Like they, they're, they're stuck using tractor beams and other technology. So, so Brian, explain I, to me why I'm wrong here, because this, I don't know. This I, seems I like feel like this is... This is something we've seen in other places, too, where like you you turn over control and they take you the rest of the way in or whatever. This is something that I feel like is been. But in. she didn't turn over control like it was automatic. No, they did. It, they did it automatically here. Um, how or why they were able to do that. But there's definitely. Um, yeah, I don't know. I got nothing. Give me let me let me let me chew on this. Maybe <laughs> by next week I'll have figured that out. But uh, I mean, Maybe the overrides of controls could have been a tractor beam, right? Where it's just like the controls aren't responding and they're tractoring her in with a series of tractor beams, not literally taking control of her ship. You know what I mean? Yeah, I guess. I guess. Okay. Uh, so Bo, Mando, and Gorgu disembark the ship. 
to find a black Death Star model protocol droid in a black astromech guiding them where they need to go. Actually, they don't even guide them. They're just like, go over there. They don't even like go with them, which is kind of weird. Uh, but they, they send them to the Hyperloop pod. And it's actually said in this episode that that's the Hyperloop. I've never, I didn't think Hyperloops existed as Star Wars in the Star Wars galaxy. And uh, in my short Google search, they do not. Uh, so I have a theory to present to you guys that you're going to hate me. So uh, here it goes. Uh, as you know, the Hyperloop concept is not new. It's, it's you know, centuries old. But about a decade ago, uh, Elon Musk is the one who kind of dug it out of a bin and brought it into public attention. And this has been kind of, you know, with some of his companies helping to develop it. And uh, I know everybody hates Elon these days, but I wanted to bring this up because I think I'm going to speculate here that John Favreau, who is included the Hyperloop in the story and actually, you know, didn't have to say what it was. It said Hyperloop. Uh, he worked with Robert Downey Jr. that introduced him to Elon Musk when they were developing Iron Man and then even featured Elon in Iron Man 2 and featured SpaceX as Justin Hammer's company's location. So I think John Favreau included Hyperloop in this because of his relationship with Elon Musk. What, Brad, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, uh, as much as it sucks, that makes sense. Um, but also, the concept of a Hyperloop is something that has been present in other sci-fi media before. Like, yeah. they, they've used that term to describe various modes of transportation in futuristic settings. So, uh, it makes sense. Not necessarily definitive, but sure. I would say, Favreau, I, if anything, it's an insult to Elon because Elon's <laughs> idea of Hyperloop is idiotic. And it's just like, we're going to bore tunnels for cars to go down one at a time. But this is actually like a mass public transit sort of situation, which is what a subway is. They just came up with a Star Wars name for it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think um, if it was in honor of Elon, it's it's definitely a, a double edged jab. Well, I I. I don't know. I appreciate your your reading of that. I think uh, I think they're friends, so I don't think it's a jab. But I will say that the concept of the Hyperloop looks really cool. I'm not sure how practical it is, but I would love to ride one. Is what I'm going to say. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so they exit the Hyperloop and they find themselves in at a dining party, and at the head of the table is Jack Black and Wizzo and uh, Brad. Tell us what you were thinking when you realized it was Jack Black and Lizzo. Well, I recognized Jack Black's voice way before we actually saw his face. So I was like, oh, man, <laughs> this is awesome. And then when I saw the character that he was playing, I was like, this is even better than I anticipated. Uh, watching Jack Black in this role is just a lot of fun. He He's such an animated character, and I love that they made this character like just a bit of a goober. He's just overly enthusiastic about everything, the way he reacts. He's he's such just like ju just a, a rich weirdo. Um, and, and Lizzo is such a random choice, too. I would really love to hear about how they got her to do this. I mean, obviously, I'm sure anybody's going to be excited to do a role in, in a Star Wars anything. Uh, but just just a very surprising addition uh, to to put her alongside Jack Black. But yeah, this to me this this was fun. I don't care what anybody else says. I, I thought they, it was a cool addition. Brian, it, it, 
it felt very much like when it opened up, like like Brad, it was like, wait, that's Jack Black's voice. But it felt like it has the vibe of like the Star Wars version of the Mad Tea Party. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it was like, this is not anything of what I expected. Like when they're like, oh, the 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 governors or the the regents of the planet want to speak with you i was not expecting them to open it up to an unbirthday party or something right and it, it had like the, i loved this scene because it had so many aliens in it too from across star wars um and it was just something i liked seeing and i think brad is absolutely right about jack black and lizzo i thought it was just <laughs> fun i would not begrudge anybody getting into star wars right i remember when do you do you do you remember when when the spoiler hounds were sort of reporting all that stuff about in sync being an attack of the clones and the fans were like how dare they how dare they try to get into star wars and it's like what what would you do like of course you'd go be in star wars so yeah i don't begrudge anybody i wouldn't even have to ask what role or what i'd be like yes when, when do you need me? I'll be there. Um, yeah. I will say that I, the promise of Jack Black and Lizzo being in this episode, when they first showed up, I was like, oh my God, this this is going to be great. And then what ended up happening with their characters, I, I feel like was not as, did not live up to my expectations of Boo. Jack, Jack Black, Black and Lizzo being in the episode. Whatever. Okay. Uh, <laughs> his, even just his name was so deliciously ludicrous. Like, <laughs> They spell it bombardier, and then they they pronounce it bombardier. Like it's so silly. Like just on its face, all of it is silly, and I love it. Yeah, and this series as a whole has been has a record of having like these comedian characters, these big name comedian characters in it. Some people find it distracting, kind of like me. Other people love it, like you and Brad. Uh, but I don't hate it. It's just um, I mean. I don't recognize how, like, I've never seen Bill Burr do anything. So when he showed up, it was like, oh, same looking him up. Seems like he's a comedian. And like Tim Meadows has been not doing anything for so long. Well, that's not entirely true. He's, he's well, been, it's not he's, entirely true. He's been he's, doing plenty, but yeah. not in but these like, spheres. But Correct. like the first episode had Brian, uh, what's his name? Brian Postain. It was Brian Postain and Brian Horatio Sands. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, like this has been like a thing, and obviously, uh, Amy um, who plays yeah plays Pelimoto. Like it, it's been a thing. I just feel like sometimes it can be distracting, a little bit distracting. But at, like, the, but at the same time, if you think about it, like at the time when the original Star Wars came out, casting Alec Guinness as a space wizard is is stunt casting. You know, he was one of the yeah. most famous and revered actors that there was. You know, so like. It's it's not as if Star Wars is uh, is beyond putting well known actors in roles like this. It's just that we're in a much different like pop culture you know arena right now, and so seeing these kind of famous people f- seems weird because we haven't seen them before and because they have such clear distinct personalities outside of Star Wars. But I don't think that it's it's a problem, at least not for me. I love your description of this, like it's the Mad Tea Party, because I love how colorful everything is at this party. Like there's colorful skins of the aliens at the table. There's their gowns are all colorful. The food on the plates are uh, the flowers in the middle of the table, and especially presented in this like white room where it all like just focuses on all the colors. The production design on the scene is incredible. Yeah, it's uh, a very 
Easter colored scene for the episode before Easter. Well, that's a good point as well. Um, and if you look around, there's actually some colorful creatures in the background as well. And uh, they're, they make mention like that. Uh, I think it's called the secretion. They're like, pull up a, the, do you want some secretion? And what it is is this creature that is swimming around in this tank that is hovering above the dining table, and the tubes are coming down to the dinner guests who suck up the secretions from this creature. Yum! It's it's very uh, you know having opium with the caterpillar. Yeah, I, that's a good point as well. I, I have not read your review for this episode, Brian, but I'm guessing now now that you, you've laid down the tracks, I'm guessing there's more Alice in Wonderland. And, uh, oh, like, uh, yes, there is more. Okay, okay. Um, let's address the Bantha in the room, guys. <laughs> I, I, I really don't like these Earth phrase like turned Star Wars things. I said this before. I said this I know. before. Uh, it's fine. This one's uh, is inoffensive, but it's just, just yeah. Um, so the captain explains that he was once an Imperial facilities planning officer, but th thanks to the New Republic amnesty program, he has been able to rebuild this or help rebuild this planet. And he fell in love with the Duchess, who is played by Lizzo, who is a great rapper, but at least. Judging by this episode, not a great actress. She's not really. Uh, she's not really a, a, a rapper. She's she's more of just like a, a, eh. a, pop, a pop star. Pop star. Um. But anyways, um, well, what did you guys think of her, her acting abilities in this episode? Because I I was not too impressed. I thought she was fine. I think she was terrible. I thought she she kind of fit the role that she was doing because she's she's being no less of a good actress than Jack Black is. I, I feel like. The, these characters are designed to be to be uh, them yeah to be like that uh, I'll yeah what were you gonna say go ahead peter oh i was gonna say the the other thing too is just like the funniest thing about this is trying to imagine jack black 10 years in the galaxy prior 20 pounds lighter and with with a <laughs> nazi haircut and an imperial uniform clean shaven yeah i wonder what he actually did for the empire because it seems like, uh, you know, Christopher Lloyd was not happy about him being in charge. <laughs> um, and we don't have the information, but I, I did also want to mention that the guards in the background are, are wearing pieces of repurposed stormtrooper outfits. So there's something to be said, I think in this episode and actually in Mandalorian in general about them, like uh, kind of repurposing stuff like the droids, the Imperial droids. We can talk about that in a little bit. But um, uh, so the Duchess wants to hold the baby, but uh, he, you know, uh, Mando's like, uh, he doesn't like everybody. And then she tempts Grogu with a small fish like creature causing Grogu to flip into her arms. And uh, I could, I could watch Grogu eating things all day. If if Disney just decided to like put up a live stream of you know not you know quote unquote live stream, which is like a loop of a a thing, I just keep it on my TV all day long. It's it's funny how this solved the we need a babysitter for Grogu problem <laughs> in a really organic way that you don't even really notice it until it's later in the episode and he's hanging out with them. 
Yeah. And you're like, oh, oh, they they solved the babysitter issue without even me like hardly noticing it. I feel like one day there's going to be a book written about the making of the Mandalorian and the writers. Uh, I guess it's just John Favreau and Dave Filoni for the most part, right? Like, it, do they have a writer's room? They must I have. A I don't get that idea. I, I the impression I get is that it's Favreau comes up with ideas, and then Dave Filoni tells him what will fly and what won't, and then they refine that. And sometimes they co-write, and sometimes they don't. Yeah, but I'd I like to hear them talk at length about the difficulties of doing this show and having to find an excuse every time for Grogu to not be with them, and how 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 they can explain it away because uh, it's definitely become a thing. Well, I, you know, I think this is only the second episode this season that, where they've really done that. I mean, Din Djarin, yeah. like, has brought him everywhere, and the one mission on in the covert, right? Like, he was staying with the armorer, which felt narratively natural, not like, here's a babysitter, take him. Yeah. Um, so we learned that they are now both royalty and elect- elected leaders. Uh the planet is forbidden to have a military due to the captain's imperial past, which is why they have hired the night owls for their protection, hired some mercenaries. And uh, they offer to bring them to the night owls. If they can first fix the droid problem that they're having, the imperial droids were reprogrammed for peace, but there seems to be a coordinated malfunction. They aren't allowed to have military force come into the city, but through a loophole, they have allowed the Mandalor- Mandalorian and Bo- uh, Bo-Katan in with their blasters and weapons because they are intrinsic to their culture. And uh, I don't, Brian, I wanted to ask you what what do you think this episode is trying to say about this ultra uh, democratic society to, to the extreme? It's like an extreme democratic utopia, but is it a utopia? Um, I mean, we might want to talk about this later in the episode, because I think there's a lot of pieces that we'll talk about that sort of add up to this. But I think that there are characters like Christopher Lloyd's who are very much like those right wing sort of hardliners that don't like that people aren't being forced to work in things. And, and there's nothing overly sinister about this. They have droids to do the labor so that people can focus on arts and leisure and, uh, you know, everything is split up among them and, and there's this great equality. I think the reason it feels like Wonderland is because we're living in a hellish dystopia. Yeah. You know what I mean? Th- like, th- that's the thing, though, is like it seems like it, it should be the perfect society, but something feels off. And it feels like the episode well, yeah. is trying to I mean, other than the, the Christopher Lloyd thing and the joy, I'm not saying like that. I'm just like, it feels like. Maybe this utopia. I don't know. See, I don't know what this episode is. Tr- I don't know. Not sure what John Favreau was trying to say about these ideas. Is I guess what I'm well, trying to say. I think it's that 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 same like it's the idea of what happens when you have you know uh, something like the empire collapse and these smaller groups of people start to like govern themselves. And so, like, of course, you're going to have you know uh, a, a planet or a city, what have you, where these. Uh, you know, aristocratic type people have created what they view as this perfect society for themselves when 
clearly there are obviously a lot of issues with it. And I think that there's, you know, that's one thing that Mandalorian is doing right now is they're showing us all these different areas of the galaxy and how they have developed and changed since the fall of the empire and showing us, you know, that there's, there's not even though the rebels won and the empire has, has fallen for the most part, not everything is, you know, is, is hunky dory, you know, like there's, there's so much more, so many more complicated things happening in, in all these different parts of the galaxy. And I think this is a, a stark contrast to the wealthy people and the aristocrats that we met on Coruscant in episode three, uh, where they're like, I don't even remember who's in charge these days. Like, my life is so cushy, it doesn't matter. These people feel like they were more blue collar and ascended to that, at least Jack Black's character. Like, he wasn't like a grand ma for a governor or anything. He was in like logistics or something and saw how hard that was and tried to bring that perspective to ruling. And and so um, I get the impression that we're going to see a lot of these different takes on it over the course of the Mandalorian as we explore the galaxy. Yeah. Um, so they say if they help them out, they promise to recognize Mandalore as a sovereign system and petition the new Republic to recognize it as such as well. Um how would this help them out? I don't even understand what that mean what that means of like making the Mandal- Mandalore a sovereign system. Like, so um, this is something in like modern day diplomacy, right? Like where uh, the New Republic might not recognize a planet as a sovereign nation unless there's other people saying like, no, they're totally a sovereign nation. Otherwise, they might try to gobble them up. You see this happen. I mean, like recently with like. Um, like Finland recently joining NATO, right? Or like Turkey trying to join the European Union, the status of different states and the acknowledgement of those states has a lot to do about how people approach them diplomatically, right? Like there are countries that will not recognize Palestine as a country, as a sovereign country, right? They'll only recognize Israel or something like that. And so this is this is a reflection of those real world politics where um a sovereign nation can recognize another sovereign nation and tell people like hey we're recognizing them as this makes sense okay uh so are they going to be in uh mando says you had me at battle droids and um while uh you know this episode feels very random and it's another mission of the week I like the concept of taking the Mandalorian, uh, this guy who hates droids, who has kind of has uh, been trying to accept them over the course of the last three seasons, and putting him in the situation where it's like this whole city run on droids and it's like corrupt in some sort of way. It's interesting, and also him, he's going to have to come face to face with super battle droids, which I'm not sure if you remember, but they they killed his family, so. Uh, th- th- they're the worst kind of droids to him, I think. Um, so Mando and Bo meet with Commissioner Halgott, who is played brilliantly by Christopher Lloyd. I love seeing Lloyd. Uh, even though he's older now, I wish he had more roles. He's so good. Like, I don't know. They gave him, like, his dialogue is not easy to pull off. It's not easy to pull off Star Wars dialogue. You, you always hear people in Star Wars saying that. And Christopher Lloyd makes it all seem natural. He really does. Especially that business about like, Count Dooku was a visionary. And it's like, <laughs> I'm so glad they got him to say something like that. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so he says all the Imperial droids were scheduled to be scrapped at Carthon. Where's Carthon? Is that something we've heard of before? It is, actually. We've actually seen it on The Mandalorian before. Carthon and the scrapyards there were where Migs Mayfeld had been sentenced to ah. serve his sentence. And they came and picked him up out of that obscurity. So Carthon is, is somewhere we've seen and have a visual touchstone to. Brad, any thoughts on Christopher Lloyd and Star Wars? No, I mean, it's, you just said that, yeah, what I would have said is that, you know, it's great to have him here. He, you know, he he has plenty of experience, you know, in sci-fi franchises and he makes, you know, some of the silliest things sound so so earnest. And so, yeah, it's just, it's just cool to see him in this role. Yeah. Uh, so they are shown video footage of a bunch of droid malfunctions. Uh, Bo-Katan suggests that they just turn off all the droids for the citizens voted against any disruption of droid services because the droids do all the work for the city and if that stopped, the citizens wouldn't know how to survive, according to uh, uh, the, what's his name, commissioner. And um, uh, by the way, it seems like a very unstable society structure. Like having everything rely on the, the droids. Like it seems like, you know, what what is the fail safe there? It doesn't, doesn't seem well thought out to me. But I, I guess well, if you have, if you have Jack Black in charge of your society. Maybe it's not the most well thought out thing. There's something to be said too, about like a society and a galaxy generally where droids are very commonplace and do tasks like this, um, that it wouldn't feel so dangerous or dodgy until something starts malfunctioning like this. Right. And it's inexplicable because droids are supposed to be programmed and it would have to be sabotage. Yeah. And I love Mando's line. See what happens when you rely on droids. Uh, the commissioner wants uh, them to seek out any of the unstable droids until they can fix the problem. So they are sent to the lower levels to speak to the Ugnots. And the Ugnots, uh, obviously, you know, uh, Mando worked with an Ugnot in season one with Quill. Uh, the Ugnots completely ignore Bo-Katan as she's like trying to command the situation. And Mando knows exactly how to address them and exa exactly how to get from them what he needs although i'm a little weird like so the ugnots at first are saying that there's no malfunctioning droids and i think this show is trying to say that they are just being protective of their work and they're lying to because they think they're trying to insult well, their integrity i think i think from the ugnots perspectives they know that it's sabotage this is not a malfunction this is not a flaw in their work something external is forcing this to happen but when people blame them yeah their pride says no nah, we're not gonna like we're not gonna fix this we're not going to tell you about it because you're treating us like assholes makes sense so they take the hyperloop to the loading docks where mando begins kicking super battle droids in an attempt to weed out the malfunctioning <laughs> droid it's so ridiculous um one droid hits him back and makes a run for it, and they pursue the droid through the city streets. Brad, any thoughts on this chase sequence through this? Uh, we get to see more of the city here. Yeah, you know, this is uh, reminiscent both of the uh, the chase in Attack of the Clones where Anakin and Obi-Wan are chasing after uh, Zam Wessel uh, on Coruscant. Uh, there's a similar vibe to the city and everything. But it also, because of the involvement of uh, droids in this case, feels reminiscent of Blade Runner as well. So I think both of those, uh, you know, scenes come to mind and it's definitely the, the same kind of vibe as they're, you know, on the run through the city. 
I think Brian even wrote an article comparing this episode to to Blade Runner for SlashFilm.com. Yeah, there's there's definitely some touchdowns when uh, Hannah, the the editor, her and I were looking and talking about this. We were looking at screenshots of Blade Runner and the the neon city streets there next to this episode. And it feels pretty undeniable that they were going for that Blade Runner vibe, especially as it gets into some of the same moral issues about like what deference do we owe a droid yeah so uh they they finally take out the super battle droid and the police drones uh, quarantine the area area uh, quarantine the crime scene i should say and they do so with this holographic crime screen tape which is i don't know i feel like there's so many cool visual ideas in this episode and speaking of visual ideas we're going to come to one just in a, a second so bo finds a spark pad advertising this droid bar called the resistor which uh seems weird to me that the in the star wars universe that they have um matchbooks but matchbooks for for robots Brad, what do what do droids need with 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 matchbooks? You know, maybe there are uh, droid death sticks that you know help them relax after a long day. Brian, do you have a the, better theory? The idea I got is that they were spark pads, right? So if they're feeling a little run down, that spark pad could juice them up. I mean, droids run on batteries, right? Ah. Uh. And yeah. and I didn't get the impression it was literally matches. It was just the noir trope of the matchbook-like thing that has the name of the place, which the name, the resistor, is so great on like a couple of different levels where maybe these droids are resisting uh, in addition to the electrical connotation yeah. of the word resistor in that case. It was, it was silly. And I like By the it. way, in my notes, it says, but I'm sure Brian has something to say about this following the trope of noir detective stories. It, you were right. You were right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which okay. is another, which is another, uh, you know, case for, for Din Jaren moving into Toontown here like Eddie Valiant, because that's just a noir story too. <laughs> that is true okay so they find the resistor it's a cantina filled with droids and i think this is another visual idea that is like incredible and i'm surprised that's never been used before although i'm not sure how much it makes sense but they try to make it make sense um you know it's a play on that whole uh we don't serve their kind here in new new hope in the uh, moss isolate cantina and uh here this place is filled with Filled with droids of all kinds. There's an early model protocol droid that looks like the Ralph McQuarrie concept art for C-3PO. There's Rex droids like from Star Tours. There's, uh, I really like the blue protocol droid. Like that looks really cool, especially with the yellow eyes. Um, they're all connected to these tubes, connected to bottles with some kind of liquid, which we will learn about in a little bit. Uh, Brad, what are your thoughts on uh, the resistor in this whole droid cantina? It's an interesting uh, concept for sure, but you know, all this droid stuff really like feels kind of weird because it starts it, like it paints it. You know, we, we've seen droids, you know, who obviously that are sentient before and seem to have like feelings and stuff like that. And knowing that, and then seeing seeing this and the way that they express like 
you know what we're cool being put to work because like we're being given a second chance and like that that's cool with us for us being treated like basically like we're slaves (laughs) (laughs) it felt a little weird to me (laughs) it is a little weird especially coming off of like uh solo and that whole thing with l2 or, or yeah um and l3 sorry uh and uh uh so i'm losing my place in my notes here Bo-Katan is trying to get to the bottom of things by questioning the droids uh but mando would rather approach that and and threaten physical harm and mando says that you can't reason with droids which to both explains that all they do is reason so it turns out like like you were, you both were alluding to the droids want to help because they don't want to be scrapped and replaced by humans uh they, i think there was a line here i didn't write it down but something like about how humans live like such a a short life span that they're they're going to live on for basically alluding that they're going to live on forever so, so their gratitude for being created by humans like they're fine with being of servitude Brian, what, what, what do you what do you feel about all this, especially coming off Solo, <laughs> the the rebellion and Solo of the Droid Rebellion? I I think that there's definitely a couple of layers here, uh, and this is one of the things I sort of wrote about, where you have a society where think about the average imperial society where everybody just works endlessly and toils for the greater glory of the empire, but the really the higher purpose of humans or, you know, or, or organics in this case, because they're not all humans is really just to like make art and be leisurely and, and to enjoy themselves. And that's really, I mean, that's what we all aspire to. Right. And for droids that are built for purposes like war, would labor be that step up for them the same way, you know, leisure would be a step up from us from, for, for labor. Um, but there's uh, there's there's way more going on in the scene as far as as far as other things um, that make it just it's sad. Like there's something sad about the scene and I can't quite put my finger on why. But it's like these droids just want a better life. Yeah. And they want everything to be nice. And there's something nice about that. You know, one thing that I don't think we've talked about so far we may have. It's been three seasons of this podcast. Um, but how this show kind of is about, in a way, there's like a theme. Well, there's definitely a theme in this episode, but there's a theme in the show about uh, leaving behind your past. And uh, are you able to uh, move on and do something good? Like, you know, uh, Mando finding Grogu and, you know, not becoming a bounty hunter anymore and like that whole thing. But also in this season in particularly, in particular, all these people that used to work for the empire who are now, you know, part of that, uh, the amnesty program and like a Jack Black's character and also these Imperial droids who are now, uh, living past their, they're trying to do good now, uh, you know, uh, being reprogrammed to do good. There, there's something here that I feel like we haven't really touched upon that it feels like they're, they're really hitting the hammer hard this season with. Well, who doesn't want a better life and who doesn't want to do good instead of evil other than <laughs> the Sith? <laughs> well, to them, it's doing good, isn't it? Good as a point of view, Peter. 
I don't know. I I just think there's something there's there's some theme going on here, and I'm not quite sure what they're where they're leading to with this theme, but it's it's definitely a, a something that's been going on this season in particular with um the amnesty program and all that. So uh, we we learn that the droid bar, the droids are served uh, nepethine, nepenthe. which is this nepenthe. Sorry, nepenthe, which is a lubricant that protects against wear while delivering program refreshing subparticles. And uh, so, is this how droids are like patched with updates in the Star Wars galaxy? That's what it that's that's what they've implied here. I mean, this is a new idea introduced in this episode, but the the name is definitely not a coincidence. Um and this is part of what makes it so sad is like in um the Odyssey, uh the Homeric, you know, epic, you know, tale. Yeah. Nepenthe is a drug for forgetting grief and sorrow. And so you've got this this bar full of droids who are like, we just want to help. And they're drinking Nepenthe, which from a literary standpoint means that they're trying to forget their griefs and their sorrows. It just makes it all the more depressing. Interesting. Uh, okay, so in, in a lab, in a... F- well, okay, the other thing I wanted to ask you is, um, so if this is how they get patched with updates... If we're on a planet like like a Tatooine that doesn't have a droid bar, as far as we know, and not not in Moss Eisley at least, um, so how do those droids get patched with updates? So, so I mean, like you see them like plug straight into astromech droids, or astromech droids plug straight into computers. Yeah. Other computers do that. I mean, three PO took an oil bath in A New Hope. Maybe maybe there's those. Uh, subparticle programming bits in that oil too. I mean, who knows? That makes sense. Um, okay, so in, in a lab, in uh, they take a fluid sample, which is drawn from the droid that's malfunctioning, the super battle droid. Uh, kind of almost like drawn, like blood is drawn, and it, he's like on a uh, <laughs> he's on like one of these gurneys, for like the uh, from the wall that's almost like uh, in like a mortuary. <laughs> something it's just funny the the imagery here well and and to your point about second chances too it looks like an imperial torture droid just painted white yeah uh so the particles are still present and it reprograms this floating lab droid that ends up attacking them before mando is able to slice it in half with the dark saber uh and they take a closer look at the sub particles and they are actually nanodroids. And uh, on them, they find a chain code that allows them to track where they came from. The security office, office is where the, these ones were ordered, and which was illegal because there's no record of them on the registry. And the person who, who ordered them is Commissioner Halgott. And they go question Commissioner Halgott, and he threatens to turn the switch. They'll turn the, all the droids on planet. I thought the switch was going to turn them off, but he says it's going to turn all the droids on the planet back to their original programming. And I don't even understand why they would even have such a switch. I guess he might have reprogrammed it or something. Yes, he probably futzed with it. (laughs) Uh, But 
I'm confused by this whole thing, guys. Can anyone explain to me the security commissioner's motives? Because yeah. this, this seems like that the point where it should be the aha moment. The like, oh my god, that makes sense. Like they 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 set this up and they set that up, and I feel like this is the point in the mystery where I like I should have the aha moment and hear him. It's just like it's him. I don't know. It didn't seem uh, fulfilling. So- in in my view, the idea was that he was a separatist, but he was also very much this like hardliner. You go back to his scene at the beginning of the show where he's talking about how the like nobody's doing any work and they're all just sort of fops like screwing around and the droids are doing all the real work and they don't want to get rid of the droids uh, because then they'd have to actually do some work. And it felt to me like he's one of those guys who are like, I had to suffer without any of this. You all should have to, too, right? He's the sort of guy who's like, no, I paid off my student loans. You shouldn't have yours forgiven because he's a dick. And so all of that made sense to me perfectly. I don't know. Brad, what do you I, am I am I up in the night here? No, no, that's that's I think right on the money. I love your analogies sometimes, Brian, comparing this to the guy that doesn't want student loans to get uh, abolished or whatever to be forgiven. is just so funny. But but is it but it's accurate, though, right? Like as soon as I said that, you're like, oh, yeah, totally. Like that's that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does make sense. OK, so. um So the so how gets in a separatist. um I want to say that Christopher Lloyd is so good at playing a bad guy. I love him playing a bad guy. Um, and uh, Bo hits him with an electric shock dart, incapacitating him. Just as he's railing against the Jedi. Yeah. Meanwhile, <laughs> the Duchess and Captain are playing some sort of game. It almost like seems like uh, like rich people would play some kind of like lawn game. Well. It's it's like croquet, right? Which goes back to Alice in Wonderland, especially uh, since they're using the bugs as the balls, like they do the hedgehogs. Yeah, My exactly. God. Brian, your 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 analogy to to Alice in Wonderland, I, I I'm now convinced that this is intentional. Yeah, of course it is. I I didn't think I thought it was. Just you think I Brian. just make this stuff up, Peter? I, I mean, sometimes, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, you, you are completely right there. That that is completely the case. Okay, so uh, Grogu uses the Force to allow the pill bug to score through a bunch of the rings. And um, is, is this a game we've seen before in Star Wars Galaxy? I'm guessing not. I I don't think so. No, I think this is as close as they could get to croquet to fit that motif as they could, like on that limited set. Now I'm mad at myself that I did not see that. I did not see this comparison. Okay. Uh, so the commissioner is is turned in to the Duchess who sentences him to live in exile on the moon of Paragot. Uh, wh- where is that? What What, what is that? Uh, I don't know. Like the closest thing I could think about it was the chemical like pesticide toxin Paraquat. Um but uh, there's no there's no record of this place in, in anything I could find. My guess uh, is it's a moon of of this planet. Yeah. Uh, so the Duchess presents him uh, presents them with the key to the planet. They will always be welcome here. 
And uh, just on top of that, she actually knights Grogu for helping her cheat at the game. Which, which, if that doesn't seem like just the weird mercurial mood of the Queen of Hearts, right? Where it's like, oh, you warriors, you've done this great task. Here's a key. But you, kid, you're a knight. I mean, he does have the chain mail. He doesn't yeah. wear it, but he has it. Um, I, I I still think this is a setup that they're going to come back to the city at some point, especially with them like saying they're always welcome there. I don't know. If it, it, it seems like this episode is going too far to set up a lot of, th- of these things for it to just be for this episode, but I could be wrong. Um, so Mando and Bo take the Hyperloop to meet the Mandalorians, and Bo doesn't know how she's going to convince her former crew to come with them and so i had this moment when she's like i don't know how i'm gonna do it yet and and tell me if if you two thought this too but i thought they were setting it up for her to challenge din for the dark saber in front of all of them yeah same that's what i thought was gonna happen i almost wonder if that was like the like what I don't know. Okay, we'll talk about it in a second. So Axwoves uh, is unwilling to give her back her fleet. So Bo-Katan challenges him. And uh, I don't know. I thought this fight was kind of weak. Brad, any thoughts on this duel between Bo-Katan and Axwoves? I do like uh, how they gave you know a Bo-Katan some cool moves with her her jetpack and u- using her the various tools at uh at her disposal but but yeah the, I feel like it could have been a little bit better because like it seems like Axwolves just sucks <laughs> yeah Brian any thoughts on the fight no I mean it it served the story yeah so Bo eventually wins the fight she argues that a group of, uh, to the group that Mandalorians are stronger together. Uh, Axe is like, well, he's not a Mandalorian. He wasn't born. And she's like, well, the, our founders were also not born Mandalorian, blah, 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 blah. Uh, anyways, uh, they aren't going to listen to her because she doesn't possess the Darksaber, which to me is like, why don't they, why didn't they just have Din say it? He possesses the Darksaber. Wouldn't they listen to him? Well, I guess they wouldn't listen to him because he's not Mandalorian blooded. Right? Yeah, they don't they don't think he has any right to it anyway. Yeah. Any more than they would have like followed Moff Gideon, right? Yeah, yeah. Um but they may have broken him out of prison, so um anyways, so Mando offers Bo the darksaber but she can't accept it as a gift. And then Din explains that while exploring Mandalore he was captured, and Bokatan defeated the enemy that defeated him. So this blade should belong to her, and the Mandalorians agree. And I didn't see this coming. What? Didn't I mean we talked about exactly this a couple of episodes ago? No, you talked about like it was it was the fact that like she gave the dark saber back to him when she could have kept it. Well, but we talked about how like this was a possibility that they could use this in the story and it wouldn't be out of bounds. Right. Like because she defeated the person who defeated him, she could lay that claim on it, but I doubted they would go that direction, but that's exactly the direction they went. Brad, what are your thoughts on this whole scenario? This loophole? Uh, I mean, it's not really a loophole. It, it makes sense. It's it's similar to what we've seen with other uh, art- artifacts like this. Like it's the same thing with uh, the, the elder wand, you know, 
um that happens in harry potter we you know you see that like it's it doesn't necessarily obey the person who has it it's more it's more loyal to the person who is worthy of it and bo-katan you know clearly showed that she was worthy of it and if you know whoever defeats uh mando you know can be defeated by bo-katan then you know by the transitive property it stands to reason that bo-katan <laughs> could have defeated din Djarin. so there you go it's harry potter rules y'all um <laughs> i don't know it, it this is a cool ending to an otherwise okay episode someone would say lackluster episode i'm happy to see bo-katan with her dark saber again but i'm kind of surprised that the mandalorians are all okay just accepting this loophole and it seems like a very undramatic way for her to get the dark saber back i do agree that it feels uh a little easy i was anticipating more of a confrontation between bo-katan and dinger at some point but i suppose that kind of flies in the face of like their desire to unite and would, you know, create more of a rift between them. So uh, even though it seems easy, I I think it makes sense for the story that they're trying to tell. Okay. uh, Do you guys have anything else left to say about this episode? I'm excited to see where it goes next. I think this, we talked about this before on earlier episodes too, where they're getting through stuff that we didn't necessarily think they'd get through this quickly. So like, is the big conflict really like who the hell is occupying Mandalore? Who are they taking it back from? Okay. Let's talk about that in just a second. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Okay, guys, we're in speculation. And usually here I have like a whole list of notes of things to ask you. But like this episode doesn't introduce much for me to ask you. Like, I don't know. So what now? I mean, you basically have set it up, Brian, of like, you know, they need to take back Mandalore, but from who and how? Well, they've got a fleet now. Yeah. And by the way, they have a lot more Mandalorians than I was aware that were with that whole Night Owl group. Yeah, I I wonder if the next episode is them finding another group, too. There's definitely, um, I feel like there have been rumors that Fen Rao might show up in this season. Um, Fen Rao was one of the journeyman protectors who uh, was in Rebels. He was actually involved with that whole situation. Um, and, And I wonder if it's going to be them picking up another sect of Mandalorians that we haven't met yet. Or looking for help elsewhere uh, as far as putting Mandalore back in its right place. Uh, so, so maybe that's it. But I think the next episode actually is probably going to set up who it is that we're going to, you know, have to fight against. And uh, it might be shocking. Brad, do you have any theories on what's going to be coming up uh, the rest of the season? Uh, there's, how many episodes left? Do we have two? Two. Yeah, that's it. I feel like we have to have some kind of new confrontation uh, with the the Empire, and like we need to actually see Moff Gideon come back. So you know that has to happen. Uh, I you know I do wonder if we're 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 going to get that Moff Gideon reveal this uh, at the end of this season to lead into Ahsoka, or if they're going to hold or sorry, not Moff Gideon, uh, Admiral Thrawn reveal if that's you know something that's happening. And or if they're going to save that for Ahsoka. Um, but that would be I'm you so know. surprised that they haven't shown Moff Gideon yet this season. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, it seems like a surprise, but like his his presence has been lingering the entire time, you know. So I mean, since the since the beginning, they've been talking about him, you know, uh, rumors of him escaping, and you know, the, the empire has been sitting there, and it's clear that there's people that are working for him. Um, so yeah, I think you know that'll be a big thing that comes into play as the Mandalorians get ready to reclaim Mandalore, and uh, yeah, moving forward in, into Ahsoka. But we don't think that's going to happen at the end of the season, right? Like, they're not going to reclaim Mandalore in the finale. I mean, I can't... I feel like reclaiming Mandalore is something that's going to take a lot of time. But I think that part of the reclaiming of Mandalore is going to be facing the Empire, who clearly has some kind of presence on or nearby, you know? Because they were were attacked after being on on Mandalore. And I think Brian mentioned before that he thinks it's probably likely there's some kind of stronghold either on the planet or nearby that they're trying to avoid being detected. I just wonder what what is the finale of this season? I mean, I I guess... Yeah. I think it's going to leave on a cliffhanger. It's going to be some shocking moment. If you think about the ending moments of... Season one, it was Moff Gideon turning on the Darksaber. At the end of season two, it was Luke Skywalker showing up. Season three has got to be something big that that outpaces those two things. Right? I think think that could be it. Hmm. Or Maul shows up again. Who knows? (laughs) It's possible. Yeah, anything (laughs) is. Um... Okay, I want to ask you guys definitively, do you think we're going to see any of the characters in this episode returning? Don't tell me it's possible. I, I, I want to know your thoughts. <laughs> um, I really don't think we're going to revisit the Corrin and Mon Calamari Prince again on this show. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe, I, I mean, they spent a lot of money making this environment look really cool. Um, maybe they'll show up on Ahsoka or something, but I don't see them coming back on Mandalorian. I don't see the Mandalorians coming back to this place. Like, it's not like there's a whole lot for them to do. They're just playing space football. What if they need an army of droids at some point? All these droids have been reprogrammed. Yeah, but they can be reprogrammed. Like, Christopher Lloyd just had a button. Doctor Doom could have just... Yeah, but we've established if they lose the droids, then the civilization falls. (laughs) Yeah, they're not going to do that. They're not going to put those people in jeopardy. They paid yeah. them handsomely. True, 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 true. Uh, yeah, I don't have any other speculation. It's it's weird because I, I feel like the last couple episodes really haven't like shown us that much, shown us the hand of what's what's coming up. All the speculation we have is kind of based on what where we feel like the show's going to eventually end up, and not necessarily what anything that they've set up. And I'm going to say what Brad says every episode, but I think we're finally at a point where they have not shown any footage coming forward because I think, Brad, I think you were wrong. In this episode, the droid bar, I think, was a clip that we saw in a trailer. Was it? Yeah, that's true. I think yeah. So. Oh, yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah, because I remember talking about that on a, a podcast a long time ago. So okay. at some point, they showed a clip of the droid bar, but I think we're now, I think we're completely now. Free of, of seeing anything coming up. But uh, maybe Brian won't be at that point next week. Maybe he'll see some stuff in London. Maybe. Are you excited for your celebration trip? I'm beyond excited. I'm, uh, 
Yeah, no, it's going to be great. I'm excited to see everything at the Lucasfilm Showcase and see what new things they announce. I'm excited to see things from the Ahsoka show and what's going on with that. I'm really, uh, I'm doing a few panels myself, uh, so I'm excited about those too. I'm doing a live podcast with Matt Martin, who's uh, on the the Lucasfilm Story Group, and I'm doing a presentation on the cinema behind Star Wars and uh some other fun stuff so i'm just really i don't know it's a star wars celebration i love these um what 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 do you expect to be announced or maybe i should say what what would you what would you want to be announced at celebration ryan johnson's trilogy that's what i want to be announced (laughs) i don't expect that to be announced i still think he's got knives out and poker face season two to finish before we ever hear about it going into more active development um but uh yeah no i just i really want to know when i can see star wars on the big screen again that's the big thing for me i love all this stuff on tv but star wars in my heart belongs on the big screen i would even watch all this small screen stuff on the big screen if they'd let me and uh so i'm hoping that's the big announcement um i'm also hoping to see stuff from ahsoka and and hopefully the acolyte and skeleton crew um yeah, no, I'm just, uh, especially knowing that the Daniels did an episode of Skeleton Crew, that's even more exciting. And I just, I don't know. The Daniels I'm, and I'm, David Lowry. Yeah, I, it, that's a really exciting series that I really want to see fast, sooner than later. Um, so yeah, I'm just excited to learn more and hang out with a whole bunch of Star Wars fans. I'm going to miss it. This is going to be the first, uh, actually, no, I missed uh Celebration in Chicago that Brad went to. Brad, do you have any expectations or hopes for this year's celebration? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely interested in hearing about the the next era of Star Wars movies. I think that's the most exciting thing for me. Um, the other, I think, really exciting thing they could do is if they just threw a curveball uh, and announced that they were forgiving all student loan debt. Um <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't think that's something you would announce at Star Wars Celebration, but if they wanted to, I'm not going to be upset about it. Uh, I would I, it'd probably I make me Christopher happier. Lloyd comes out on stage and he's like really mad about it. Yeah, exactly. So if, if, if they want to do that. No, it's, they get Christopher Lloyd to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that, that, that would be amazing. That would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, I'm really hoping that some movie news comes out that like is actually happening. That like, you know, the... the, the I don't know how you can say it's actually happening unless it's like actually shooting, which nothing. I think they right pretty now, much. But... They pretty much. I think they know they have to announce movie stuff. Like if they don't announce movie stuff right now, people are going to be like, "Oh, what the fuck are you guys doing?" Um, so yeah, I, I feel like that they have to announce some movie stuff. Okay. Well, next time we talk, we'll we'll know the answer to all these questions, and I can't wait to talk to you guys about that next week. Brian's going to be still in Europe at the time, so we'll we'll be talking to him in. Brian, you're going to be in the yeah. future. Yeah, I'll be I'll be in the future. Hopefully, hopefully we can make it work. So, yes. I just want to hedge bets just in case something happens. I'll be on the other side of the planet. Who knows? <laughs> okay, you can find more of all of our work at slashfilm.com. You can find this podcast on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. If if you enjoy these episodes, please head over to Apple Podcasts, write us a review, send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, speculation to Peter at slashfilm.com. And yeah, that does it for today. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening.